0: Good evening. It is indeed a blessing to be here this evening and uh, join with you again in worship tonight. Thank you for making time to come back. Sometimes I do a children's class, and I didn't announce this last night, but would there be enough children here tonight to have a children's class? I should have announced it so you'd know to come. Who would come up for that? Let's have a few children come up, and this lesson will be for you and maybe for the rest of you too, if you can pay enough attention and stoop low enough to get it. Alright, All right. thank you for coming up here. Uh, can you hear okay? Shall I move the mic over? alright without it? Okay, very good. Um, I want to do three things tonight. Nice. It's not going to be a long children's class, just a few minutes here. But I wanted to, sh- to share something with you. I'm going to do three things. I'm going to read you a couple of verses and ask you a couple of questions. I'm going to show you something. And I'm going to tell you a really gross story. You might not like your words, but it's a true story. So I want you to hear it. So here's the verse I want to share with you. Jesus said this about people. So we know we have a heart inside and we're a person. So Jesus said this, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. Now what kind of heart does an evil man have? Good or bad? bad? Bad heart. Okay. What kinds of things come out of a, a bad heart? It's evil doings. Okay. Can you mention a few of them? Alcohol would be one. Anger, angry words, maybe lying, stealing, pretty much any bad thing you a person could do. What kind of heart does a good person have? Okay, loving heart. He said that, that, that good things come out of a heart like that, right? So he said that good things come out of good hearts, bad things come out of bad hearts. So uh, here's another verse in Proverbs uh, 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Basically what he's saying is, your heart has some doors into it, and whatever we let into it affects what comes out of it. Okay? Now can you think of what the doors are to your heart? Does your heart have doors? I think probably the two doors that are the biggest ones are your ears and your eyes. You can see things, and then it gets inside and you start thinking about them and meditating on them. You can hear things, maybe things your neighbors say or things in the store, or sometimes you hear things aren't so good. And sometimes even bad thoughts can come in through our ears or through our eyes, and we can think about them, and they can, if we're not careful, they can affect them from now. The it can affect the heart inside. And so, uh, that's some things we're thinking about here. So, I'd just like to show you a couple of things here this evening. Um, this is a pretty cup, isn't it? Have you seen this one before? It's over in the apartment. Some of you may have. Um, so that's, that's one. I found it over there. I thought I'd bring it over here this evening to show you. That's a pretty, I had my coffee there this morning in that one. Here's one. That's a funny looking one, isn't it? I'll tell you a story behind that one. This is one I actually made myself. Sort of. So I was at visiting a friend's house and she had a a pottery wheel and she took clay on this thing and you make it go round and round and I used my fingers to try to form a little cup-shaped thing and it didn't turn out very good. And she said, just leave it there and after you're gone, I'll mess with it and see if I can make it better. And after a while, she sent it to me. She finished it out. She cooked it in her oven and then she put this glaze on it and made it look all nice. That's sort of pretty. And here's another one. This one is a... uh, just a cheap little clay cup from Guatemala. I brought it back in Guatemala in time. Doesn't cost very much. It's, it's still mud-colored. You see that color of the dirt. That's how they make them like that. Now, if you could choose, which one would you like to drink out of? It? If you could choose any one you wanted, which one would you like to drink out of? Do you have favorite cups at home? One, of, when you want to go get a drink, you get this special one. Maybe you're going to drink hot chocolate, and you have to get your special hot chocolate cup. I have a coffee cup at home that i if it's dirty, I'll wash it before I use it because I like to use the same one. Uh, just sort of a habit. Which is more important? The cup that you drink out of or the drink inside of the cup that you want to drink? What do you think? Is it more important to have a good drink or a nice cup? Probably a good drink, right? So we'll pour a little drink in these things. With this one a drink. This one a drink. This and a drink. Now I can't invite you to come up here and take a sip out of these cups because, you know. There's only three of them. So let's do this. Let's pretend like we're gonna give this cup a drink, we'll just dump it in here. Anybody like this cup? Who would vote for this one? Like that? That's a pretty one. What do you think about that? What's wrong with that? That looks weird. Who votes for this cup? This is pretty blue, right? I wouldn't like that drink. Came out of a nice cup, but the drink sure ain't very nice. And we have this little old cup, and here's water. It's just as clean as when it went in, right? So what's the difference? What was the problem with this stuff? Listen. Was the water that went in a problem? That looked clean. It says Ice Mountain, 100% natural spring water. Actually, it's 100% apartment water. Is there any wrong with the water? Where was the problem? In the cup, right? In the cup. So, uh, think about that. Now, here's a story I want to tell you. Down in Guatemala, I'm where I used to live we had a well that we got our water out of. It was a hand dug well. They dug it by hand it in the ground. And uh, we had a cover on the well, a little block around the well and we had a cover on top so nothing could get in it. And we had a pump in there and they pumped water out of the well up to a cistern up on the top of the house and from there we got water for the house. And uh, we'd use that water to brush our teeth. wouldn't drink it because it was not you know, purified water but we would Wash clothes, wash dishes, wash your hands, brush your teeth, and take a shower, and we used the water for that. But one day we noticed the water was starting to have a funny smell about it. And we would wash your hands and smell your hands and it didn't quite smell clean. You'd wash dishes in it and you're not sure if it smells like a clean dish or not. And after you take a shower, you almost feel like after you have to take another shower because it isn't quite But it should be. And so we started looking around. Of course, what do you look for when you you have a problem with your water? You can check the pipes. There's nothing wrong with the pipes. You check the cistern and the tank on top of the house. Nothing was wrong with that. They went out and took the cover off the well and looked down the well. And guess what was in the well? It was a dead cat in the well. (laughs) And for about a week or five days, this water was coming out of the well with a dead cat in it. And that's gross. And uh, of course, the first thing we did was take the cat out of the well, and then you had to dump Clorox in there and stir it all up, and then run the water and run the water till everything was cleaned back out. It took a while. to get clean water again after that. And uh took a long time. Now, if we would have found that cat right away and got it out, it wouldn't have been much of a problem. Maybe a little bit of cat hair, but not a rotten cat. And so it needed to be gotten out right away. We didn't. It stayed there for a while. And I don't know if somebody put it in there for a bad joke or if it fell in and died or what happened, but that was the story of the cat in well. And so, the doors that guard your heart, you need to keep them very careful. Be careful what you listen to, be careful what you look at, be careful what you think about. And let's say something does happen and you start thinking about something you shouldn't. The best thing to do is go to your mom and dad and say, I'm thinking about this, I'm not sure what to do with this. And ask for their help to pray about it and get it taken care of because the longer it sits there, the worse it gets. Things happen in the the way. It, it affects what comes out. Um, and we can clean things up again. With God's help, we can be washed clean and the water stays pure coming out. If we don't have to pour this kind of stuff out. Because everything that comes out of our life comes out of our heart. And that's why we need to keep our heart clean. Okay, that's what I wanted to tell you, Matt. See you back to me. Thanks. So last night we drew a big picture. We drew a picture that started and ended at the throne of God. That was sort of the large scope of what we viewed last night. The brightening light, the unfolding plan, the nature of God's kingdom, and the fact that only Jesus can get us from where we are to where we need to be. And that's uh, just sort of an introductory message, some things there that we could take in many directions. Um, There's a lot of distractions these days, many voices in our world that want to take us other places. May we use his word and become very familiar with his voice, because only then can we be led right, not be led astray. One thing I see in Jesus' teaching, I believe he was introducing us to a new understanding of what the kingdom of God was to be like. And they had some understanding of that. But he talked about what God's children are like in Matthew 5. Uh, He talks about what God's kingdom would be like and how it operates in Matthew 13. Many stories where he said the kingdom of God is like this or like that. It's almost like he's taking a, a big entity and looking at it from this angle and then from this angle and then over here to show us a picture of what the kingdom of God would be like. And my concern is that we would learn to hold a true view of what the Christian life is. And we right away say, well, we've got that. We've studied it. We understand it. We've been raised in this stuff. We know what the essence of the Christian life is. But we need to be a little careful because the Christian life, I believe, has foundational tenets and main pillars. Then there's other many peripheral things that grow out of that. And the Pharisees proved to us that a mistake in emphasis is like missing the truth altogether. Jesus said you've paid much attention to all the minor details, but you've missed the most important essence of what God really wanted. Now, there's nothing wrong with tithing mint and cumin. There's nothing wrong with dressing like the law required. There's nothing wrong with praying. But the fact that their emphasis was so mistaken, they had overlooked some of the most important things. Jesus said, "You, you really don't understand. And so may we not fall into that trap. We are working with hundreds of years of accumulated church uh, history and church, what's the word? Traditions, maybe. Good ones. In my mind, they're good ones. At the same time, may we not miss the fundamentals. We want revival in our life. I believe we do. And I would suggest that revival is not found by looking for a new thing It's by reviewing the old things, the central things, the main things. And so I believe that it would not be a waste of the remaining messages to review some of the essential fundamentals of what the kingdom of God is and what it's built around and the the understanding that gives us a solid understanding of it. And I'd like to emphasize one tonight that I believe that Jesus is very concerned about. And that is simply that true spiritual life rests upon inner realities before external realities. The inner things, the, the inner life, the, the, uh, and these two are not the same. You have the, the, the life that everybody else sees and then the one that I live inside that nobody knows about. And ideally it's the same one. There's no disconnect there, but too often there is a disconnect. And so I want to talk about that this evening. If we guard the inner life, if we fail to guard it, everything fails. If we fail to nourish it, everything dies. So I believe God's concern here is twofold. Number one is one we just read for the children. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Jesus said the heart of man is like a well. Every expression is drawn from it. And if we would serve God in purity, we must keep that source very well uh, protected and with transparency and, and maintaining integrity before God. That's our first responsibility. Keep the cats out of it, as it were. The second one comes from Ephesians 3. We'll read a few of these verses in verses 14 through 19. For this cause, Paul writes, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And the second thing that we're called to do is to put ourselves in the way of his blessing, his filling, and make sure that inner man is nourished from the manna from above, and make sure that it's Keeping up with its daily exercise and make sure it's a healthy entity inside. It's an inner man that that is strong and vigorous and well off. Um, so the message here tonight is maintaining this inner life. I'd like to speak to that and maybe use two scriptures to demonstrate the difference and show us the difference between these two and, and why the what I'm speaking of is important. I'd like to invite you to Matthew twenty four this evening, twenty five. We're going to take the time to read a portion here that is a well-known portion. And as we read it, I would like for you to try to describe to yourself how you would view the difference between the inner life and the outer life as you read this thing and understand this little introduction. Matthew 25, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps, and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Then all these virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. The fascinating thing to me is to notice all the similarities that existed in this whole group of young ladies up until the final moment. Now, I know there were differences. They were there the whole time, but you sure didn't see them. You didn't notice them. You wouldn't have noticed if you had walked by that evening. They were there from the beginning. Some took oil, some didn't. Some were wise, some were foolish. But all of them were virgins, it says. They're all young women about the same age, maybe the same moral standard and profession of godly life, and they were all there. They looked the same, same appearance of sanctity and unity in this thing. They were all waiting on the same person. They were out beside the road, maybe. They were had the same expectation, and they were just waiting the moment when the bridegroom would come around the corner and they could go with him into this wedding feast. They all made plans, they're all excited. And they all had a lamp. They all brought one thing that was the same. They all had an ability to make a light, and they had it in their hands, and it was there to make a to, to welcome the bridegroom with. They all slumbered. They all went to sleep. They all woke up. They all trimmed their lamps. And only then did they notice a the difference. When the bridegroom was coming around the corner, some had it, some didn't. Some were able to make light in their lamp and some had nothing but darkness in their lamp. Some had oil and some had none. And the moment it was most needed, five were not ready. Now there's a few things here that I learned from this passage. Spiritual applications in this passage. The first thing is very simple. Outward unity did not compensate for inward deficiency. Uh, They were part of a group you would not have distinguished the one from the other. But something was missing. And that something was the most important thing of all. I believe God's children should want to be identified with God's people. We all should. But it's of primary importance that the inward truth of spiritual life be real. Real. So the hour can have value. The second thing I notice in this is that five carried oil, five had none. And those that had it did not share it. And so the ones that didn't have it quickly went to the others and said, I'm out. Can you give me some? And they said, no, you go get your own. And, you know, there's a store back here around the next street. They're open 24-7. Go get some back there. You can get it. And I believe that that spirit of grace and vitality that only comes from the Lord. Uh, it only comes one way. And you can get that in a relationship with Him and you can't get it from any other source. There's nothing that can provide that inner spark, that inner reality of spiritual life except through a relationship with Jesus. And it's never transferred from one person to the other. If, you, if you're feeling dry and, and empty... Please don't come to me and say, can you share yours? Because I'm going to just tell you, honestly, I need all I have for myself and I barely have enough for what I need. And so you go get your own. Go home to your closet. Get on your knees. You can get it. Just go ask for it and seek it. And it's there to be to be had. But don't expect to get it from someone else. And I would suggest tonight that no matter how spirit-filled one is, the best you can do to help another person in their spiritual walk is to lead them to the source so they can find it for themselves. There's no other way for them to get it. Spiritual life is not found in discipline. It's not found in activity. It's not found in in routine. It's only found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's good to come to church. It's good to sing. It's good to hear messages. But unless all of that leads you to your knees to make your own decisions, to make your own commitment to the Lord, none of this helps you. All of it is simply noise and, and activity. The only thing that will help is if you and your personal relationship with the Lord get real. And then these things have value and blessing. But beyond that, uh, this can never impart spiritual life to those who do not enjoy that, that connection, that personal uh, abiding in Jesus connection. We must obtain this oil while there's time to get it. This is not done at the last minute. It's found through a daily walk. It's not found in a desperate rush. It's found in regular communion, not in a last minute panic. And it's good to take personal inventory. Is there a supply? Is there a fresh flow? Am I dry and empty? How am I doing? Third thing I'd point out is this. Jesus is not... Offer a dipstick here to see how much oil we've got. Pull it out. Yep, it's above the ad mark. I'm good. Put it back. Keep on going. The only way to tell if there's oil there, if there's a light burning. That's the only way to know. Is there a shining? Is there a testimony? Is there an evidence that Jesus is real in me? We had men's meeting in Guatemala in Sansur, and afterwards it was dark and the church was up this rocky path on the hill, and so afterwards, this group of men would walk out together. And one thing I noticed that Guatemalans are good at is conserving their flashlight batteries. And so they would maybe flash the light down the path, and when they memorized the stones, turn it off and walk a little bit in the dark. Turn it back on again and walk a little more in the dark. And if this man has his flashlight on, I'm not going to waste my batteries. I'll walk in his light for a while. Save mine. Well, that's great if you're saving batteries, but... This isn't the way it works in the kingdom of God. Uh, too often, maybe a person feels spiritual because they go to a spiritual church. They're sitting beside spiritual people. They're listening to spiritual Sunday school class. And it just feels like they fit in. It feels like they're going with the flow here. And maybe the best way to tell there's oil in the lamp is not in the midst of the light, it's in the midst of the dark. And when I'm by myself in the dark... Is there a spark? Is there a light? Is there a witness? Is there evidence that Jesus means something to me? When the bridegroom comes, it's personal. It's inventory time. The conclusion is a sobering thought. As much as Jesus loves the body and cares for the church and wants to see his bride be complete, in the final accounting, it's not about me and my church. It's about me and my God. That's what happens in the final accounting of things. These ten were not accepted because they belonged to a group. They were accepted by the evidence and the reality of what they carried and whether they were ready for that. To me, the difference between the outer life and the inner life here is very clear. I don't know if you could describe it in a nutshell, but I think I would describe it this way. The outer life is what everybody else could see. The profession, the lamp, the expectation. The inner life was simply what other people could not see, but that mattered very deeply. I believe the point of this parable was Jesus' opinion of two groups of people. One group that cared only about what other people thought. A group that cared only about what, what could be seen and was obvious in the physical world. And the wise who labored for truth on the inward parts those who are concerned about what was on the inside. I believe that's what Jesus is pointing to here. I'd like to take you another passage in Psalm, a second example of the difference between the inner life and the outer life that all of us deal with on a daily basis. Psalm 1, the first three verses. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So here's the description of a man that God would bless. And we want to be men like that, and women like that. People whose God can look at them and just say, here's a person, and I can put my stamp of approval on their life, because... They're doing it the way I want them to do it. They're living the way I want them to live. Who is a man like that? Well, the first thing he mentions, here's a person that guards himself from sin. He keeps the cats out of the well. He, he's concerned about not following ungodly advice, not flirting with the tempter, not lording around sin and hanging around temptation. He makes choices. And all of us know that choices about sin are inner choices long before their outer choices. We choose to think and meditate and imagine long before we do and act and carry it out. It's the nature of of the way this works. And so David said, blessed is the man that guards both the actions and and the heart. He also says, blessed is the man that delights to meditate on God. Now here's a person that reads the word. Nobody makes him, but he does. Here's a person that meditates. He, in the privacy of his mind, nobody else can see it, but he is thinking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. And he has a prayer life, an inner place to meet with God, to uh, pray. Now I want to just point out, these are things that nobody can force you to do. These are things that you will do only if you want to do them. Other people can make you read the Bible. They'll say, here, read this verse. And you say, okay, I'll read this verse. But nobody can make you meditate. That happens inside. You can read all day long. and But to meditate is your choice. People can make you kneel, but they cannot make you pray. Prayer is what happens between my spirit, my heart, and Jesus, and and the Father. The choice to maintain this inner life is a personal choice. Then it says... If you live like this, you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Maybe you've seen examples of this, but the one I remember is the way we used to walk to church or drive to church in Guatemala was across a small creek, maybe a mile and a half up through the hills to the church. And we had a dry season down there that almost was six months long, from about November through May. And we might get a sprinkle of rain in February, but it was mainly a dry time. And the further we got, the drier it got. The dirt was bare. The They were burning off land. There was ashes in the air. It was dusty and dry. Everything was brown. But right by the creek was this tree. And when everything up the hill was crisp with dryness, this tree was green. And it had green leaves year-round. It was a beautiful tree. And the reason was because its roots had access to something that nothing else up the hill had access to. It had access to the stream, to the water down in the ground, and it was healthy and lived well. Now, if you would draw a tree, how would you start? When I draw a tree, I draw the ground, and then out of the ground I draw the trunk, and then I draw the branches, and I make it sort of a third grade kind of tree that I never learned how to draw A good tree, but that's the tree. And unless you're a biologist, that's the way you would draw a tree, because that's what you see. But when you see a tree, you're only seeing half of the reality. You're only seeing the top half. That's the second importance. You're not even seeing the most important part of it. And the roots that are under the ground, you never see them almost, but that's the secret to a healthy tree. And some trees have the same extension, at least in width, underground that you can't see, as the branches do, above ground, that you can see. Tremendous root systems down there. And I would suggest tonight that when others look at your life, they're seeing only the half, only the external things, the things that happen because something else happens, the the outer things. They can't see your heart, your mind, your devotion, your commitment. They can't see your honesty with God's voice, your investment in spiritual life. They can't see your conscience. They can't see the obstacles to your spiritual growth, the things you're not willing to deal with. Those are all things that nobody else can see. That's just you and God. That's the only people that truly know those things. That's the inside. But the truth about a tree is that what happens at the roots soon affects the branches. What happens down in there soon affects what's up top. I had a little cherry tree like that I planted a couple years ago. Last spring it bore three or four little cherries and in two weeks it was dead. It was just dried up within within one week. And something was wrong down in there. I didn't know it until the top dried up. And discerning people can look at your life and begin to discern a little bit if the roots are healthier or if they aren't. Because what's down there will soon affect what's on top. It might come in different ways. Maybe your service to church and your appreciation for brotherhood is a little less committed, a little begrudged and forced. Maybe there's a listlessness of spirit, maybe a little restlessness of life, and you're just not what you once were. And a discerning person can see that something is not quite right here. There's a change happening that points to something down deep. And they might come asking questions, and we should. How are your roots doing? How are you... How's your spiritual, how's your inner man doing? There's dying going on at the roots. I hope we've not learned to think that as long as we act right and look right, we're all right. I trust that's not your experience. I know it is the experience of some. Some bear testimony of that, that as long as they fit in and didn't get in trouble and sort of did things the way we were expected. They just went with the flow and everything was good. Don't think like that. That's not the truth. Uh, we need this inner connection with the Lord that that produces in us this spiritual life. And I hope we don't think that as long as the heart is right, nothing else matters. There's always the connection between what's at the heart and what's at the what the fruit is. And we own both of them. We're responsible for both of them. We just need to know which comes first and which is a product and deal with things on that basis. I'd like to suggest here some some things that to me are, are pointers or ways that we can take care of the health of the inner man. It's very important that we learn to do this. And we carry these things out faithfully. God has given us a wonderful ally in this. It's an inner referee. It's an inner uh, health exam. It's our conscience. And I would just very plainly say that if we cannot keep our conscience clear, we cannot have a healthy inner man. It, God gave us that to point us in the right direction. I know it's not always the voice of God itself, but it's a tool that God uses to help us. We need to train it right. We need to check it sometimes. And sometimes it gets dull and doesn't speak as loudly as it should, so we... We can't depend on it 100%, but it's a very important tool. The important thing about a conscience is very simple. It's something that only you and God know about. Nobody else does. And the fact that you would listen to it shows that you are being serious about your Christian life. Because if you ignore it, nobody else is going to find out about it. It's simply between you and the Lord. So if we want a healthy inner man, we must attend to the prick of conscience. And there's a way to do that. And look at the example of David, and David was the beloved king of Israel. He was a godly king most of the time, psalmist, very admired, appreciated. And David was tempted. You know the story of David and Bathsheba. He saw something he shouldn't have seen. And there was things he could have done about that. He could have went to his, I don't know if he had accountability partners, but he could have went to Nathan. He could have went to somebody and said, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me uh, have victory over this temptation? But he didn't. The door was open. Something came in that was not right. He meditated on it in his heart and let it grow there until he carried out his plans and took steps to hide it. Married Bathsheba, killed her husband. And you know, other than the fact that they had a premature son, it seemed like he had covered it up. Who knew? Imagine how David felt. Because in that time forward, David was a false man. What was on the outside was not the same as what was on the inside. There was an obvious disconnect there. And so he stood before the people. He led their worship. He passed judgment on other people's sins. He went in and out before the people there. And all the while, this inner darkness, this inner stain, and, and this contamination of life, and he was smiling at people and doing business as usual and handling himself well and, and all the time God was looking at the inner life and saying something is wrong. Something is bad and wrong. Now David didn't repent until he was con- confronted about this point when Nathan the prophet came and told him what he told him, the story of the lamb and David broke. I'm often a little leery of people that only confess when they're backed in a corner. You ever have experiences like that? The truth is getting out and the evidence is getting clearer and so you confront the person and here's all the things and he's, he's basically trapped in a corner and so he says, yes, I confess, I I sinned. And the next week more evidence comes out and he says, oh yes, I did that too. And so it's never quite a total clearing unless he's backed in a corner and we don't need to live like that. We need to have, clear ourselves and confess before that happens. I believe David was sincere. They, he wrote Psalm 51. And if you can read that psalm in the context of what David did in his confession, he said a couple of things there. He was feeling the weight of sin. Verse 8, he said, uh, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Verse 6, what God really wants is truth in the inward parts. That's not just truth before men. That's truth before God, an integrity of heart that only God knows. Here's a principle you can hold to. Godliness thrives in transparency and sin thrives in secret. And if you find yourself hiding something, covering something, uh, it most likely shouldn't be there. God wants truth on the inward part. First Timothy 1.19 says, Holding faith and a good conscience, without which or which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Conscience is important because conscience, if, if we're not willing to attend that part of our life, we cannot have a a uh, faithful walk with the Lord. There was a young man in Guatemala that showed himself much different than David did. This young man's name was Cesar, and he was coming up to baptism, probably thirteen years old, fourteen years old. And a week before baptism, I asked him, uh, is everything okay? Are you feeling like you're ready to go through with this? And there's nothing left to take care of, and you're walking in victory with the Lord? And he thought a little bit and said, uh, I, I stole an apple down at the store a while ago, and I think I should go make that right. I didn't know it. His parents didn't know it. The storekeeper didn't know it. The only person that knew it was him. And the fact that he listened to that inner voice saying what you did was wrong and then went and paid for it, confessed it, made it right, that is ample evidence that here is a young man that that is walking with the Lord that wants to be right with God. And he could have just ignored that and nobody would have known, but he chose to do it the right way. So that's one thing very important. Don't let... Uh, An injured conscience be the shipwreck of your faith. Here's another area in Colossians 3:15. It says, "Let the peace of God rule in your heart." That's the first, probably the only time in Scripture that word is used. Arbitrate in your heart. In other words, here's a referee down there. If you step on the foul line or or touch the net or get out of bounds in some way, there's a whistle goes off and says, "You're not where you ought to be. You got to come back inside." Now, I would like to suggest that the inner man can only prosper when it's inside the boundaries that God wants for it. If it chooses to live outside of that, there will not be victory in a spiritual life. And and the inner man can only do well when it's inside those boundaries. And if we need to relocate those things and make sure we're inside of them, know where we stand. I'd like to suggest something that maybe we ought to think about. You know, sometimes when we get a habit of disobedience or habit of being outside those boundaries, we forget where the rules are. We forget where the limits are. And so to reestablish that and know we're on the inside where we belong is a good step in spiritual health. The first thing I would suggest we do is just take stock. If there's any area that I know I'm out of the boundaries set for me by parents, church, others that that I know that have been preset for me that are obvious and clear. And get back inside that. That's not hard. I mean, it's a struggle, but it's not hard to understand them. Um, And so start with that. Then take what's left and get on your knees and make three piles. Make a pile of things you know are 100% sanctioned and okay by God. Say you pull out the Maranatha CD and say, well, that's a godly CD. That's one God would keep. Put it over here. Maybe there's books. They're historical. They're good stories or whatever. And you just know, even though it's not talking about the Bible, they're solid, decent literature. And so it goes there. Maybe there's some other things. Maybe there's some stuff on the iPod or maybe some stuff on the phone that you know that you can't honestly thank God for. It's not honestly a blessing for your spiritual life. And you feel like it's a distraction instead of a, a help. And so that needs to go over here. And what you're doing is re establishing for yourself the boundaries that God has set. And there might be a number of things that you don't know what to do with, and so make a third pile and put it away for a month and come back to it and say, how does it look now? Because as we retrain our appetites, it gives us a new view of what God thinks. You know, I used to deal with life this way. There were the things that were white and black, and in this, in the middle is a big gray area that God doesn't really care about, and that's where most of life goes. And so there's a lot of stuff we throw in there. But I've learned the longer we walk with God, the narrower that gray area can get. Because we realize that God does care about these things. And He doesn't just care about getting us out of the worst of sin. He wants to fully sanctify us and make us like into the image of Jesus Christ. And so instead of just dragging us away from the mud puddle, He wants to get us all the way on solid ground walking with the Lord in every area of our life. And so we need to do that. If we want spiritual health, we need to be inside God's boundaries. The third thing that I believe is important, and, you know, we talk about the inner life so far, we've mentioned things that have to do directly with me and God. And that's very important because there's some things about my life that only God knows and I know about. My honesty and integrity and living in the fear of God. But there's another area that's very important and I think 1 Corinthians 8.21 points this out. It says, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So God doesn't just care about how I live before him, but he also cares about my conduct and interaction and transparency with the believers that I relate to. And we can read in 1 John, maybe we should in fact, a few verses there. 1 John 1 um, points this out, verses 5. Through seven, This is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now there's two words that define how we can live. We can live in light. That is transparency. It means to shine or make manifest. And so we live with a openness about us that invites people to to know me. Uh, this is who I am. And then there's a darkness. It's a, sh- a shadiness, an obscurity. You can live like that. To camouflage yourselves, to keep other people at a distance and try to... Uh, Maybe hold myself close so other people don't know. And and I believe that the outer life that we live is supposed to be a window on the inner life, how the soul is doing. But too often, the outer life becomes a curtain, a closed door. It's like painting the windows and nobody can see what's really going on. It's easy to do that It's a human tendency. What we tend to do is, if if my life was a house and I don't want people to know what's inside it, I would paint the windows, lock the doors, and then put in some beautiful landscaping around the outside so that people would look and say, wow, that's beautiful, but they have no idea what's down inside. Some people live like that. And John says, there is no fellowship if we're not walking in light. If we walk in light, the blood of Christ cleanses and fellowship happens. And that's the key to a healthy uh, church life and a healthy spiritual life in general. The Brotherhood needs to know that they can ask me any question and they'll get an honest answer. Anybody can knock on the door of my life anytime and ask and and maybe share concerns and they know that I will respond with transparency and honesty. That's, that's one way this is done. Uh, I don't want to hide behind who you think I am. I want you to know who I am and I want you to... Uh, But we also need to know that church needs to be a safe place to do that. The reason some people don't is because there's transparency and honesty pretty soon. (laughs) Everybody knows about it. So we can't let that happen. We need to guard confidence, but guard transparency at the same time. If we want a healthy inner life, we must fear God, not man. And... When Samuel saw Eliab, he said, this must be the one. And God said, no, what you see is different than what I see. And that's sort of the way it is. We see the outside, God sees the inside. And, uh, and don't start down the the road the Pharisees took. In their environment, they came up with this system that was very much based on the fear of man. And they, they were, uh, they loved the praise of man rather than the praise of God. They were, they did good to be seen of men. They could do nothing anymore for the glory of God alone. They had to be for the, benefit of other people. They feared man so much that they, some believed and yet could not say so because they were afraid of what would happen. The result of hypocrisy is an environment of fear where we seek to please each other and, and not God only. And I predict that if our churches become an environment like this, this will not aid the growth and vitality of spiritual life, but will wither and kill it. Because that's not the way it was designed to be. The inner man can only thrive when the fear of God is greater than the fear of men. That's important. One more thing here that's very important. If we would have a healthy spiritual life, we must maintain the inner disciplines that God asks of us. And the Pharisees emphasize the outward things of this. Jesus turned around and pointed out the importance of the inner parts. Let's go back to Matthew 6. Jesus said uh, they've done wrong by emphasizing the action. Do it for the glory of God. Matthew 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do. Um, but when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Catch verse 4. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. This to me is a key uh, summary of how this works. The, uh, the Pharisees got mileage out of other people noticing what they did. Jesus said, that's all they're after, that's all they get. And Jesus said, if you really want to glorify God and get, get true spiritual growth in this, do it so the Father knows, and that's enough. Don't do it for the benefit of someone else. Prayer, same way in verse 5 and 6. When you pray, He said, don't be like the hypocrites trying to do it in public so that people would notice and pat them on the back for their good spiritual exercise. But uh, verse 6, When thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Prayer is not for man, it's for God. I know we pray together in a group. The brother led in public prayer this evening. It's a blessing to pray that way together. But even when we pray in public, we're thinking about communion,